morning to Matthew chapter 5, and we want to continue in our look at the Beatitudes. And this time we come to verse 6 in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, and I want to read that verse to you, and then we'll get right into it because our time is always limited in chapel. Verse 6 of Matthew 5, Blessed are they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, this beatitude speaks of a very strong desire. It speaks of a driving passion, a consuming ambition. The words speak about someone who has an unfulfilled appetite. You know what it's like when you are very hungry. Most of us don't understand true hunger, but we understand enough about it to know what it's like when you're really hungry or really thirsty. In a spiritual dimension, that is the intent of this particular beatitude. It demonstrates an attitude that should mark a person who is a part of the kingdom of God. We who belong to Christ, we who are in his kingdom, should demonstrate this kind of consuming passion this kind of ambition, this kind of drive and desire for righteousness. This again, as all the other Beatitudes are, is a mark of someone who is in the kingdom. Now, strong desire and strong ambition can definitely be placed in the wrong areas. We're all aware of that. I'm reminded, for example, of Lucifer. Lucifer, the son of the morning. Lucifer, perhaps the most beautiful and maybe the most powerful of all the created angels, had a strong desire, and his desire was what? Do you remember what it was? He said, as recorded in Isaiah chapter 14, he said, I will be like whom? The Most High. He had a consuming desire to be like God. He had a resolute ambition to be equal to God. He was power hungry. He was glory hungry. And how did God react? According to Isaiah 14, 15, God said, that you will be brought down. That was an illicit ambition. That was a wrongful desire. And then there was Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, the most glorious empire in the world. In fact, in Daniel's imagery of world history, uh, the Babylonian empire was the head of gold, the purest, the most sovereign of all the ruling of men. And that great King, that King Nebuchadnezzar, the most glorious of all kings of ancient times, had a very strong desire, and his desire was much like that of Lucifer. His desire was to be seen by everyone as ultimately eminent and sovereign, and he began to set himself up as equal to God. He demanded that everybody worship him as if he were God. He was hungry for praise, and you remember what God did. God struck him and made him uh, to be what we would call in a medical uh, terminology today insane. He turned him into a madman who lived in the, in the grass, ate grass. His fingernails grew like bird's claws, and uh, for seven years he lived without his senses. God struck him down. Then there was the rich fool, uh, the, the one who appears in the teaching of Jesus, who was doing very well in business. And he had a strong desire also. His desire uh, was to gain more and more earthly wealth. He wanted to be more fulfilled in terms of possessions and more fulfilled in terms of pleasure. And Jesus called him a fool and ultimately required of him his eternal soul. 
So there is such a thing as a strong ambition and a strong passion for the wrong thing. And we're very used to that. We live in a society where that is, in fact, the case. We live in a society of people who consume everything in sight for their own pleasure and their own benefit. And so in the middle of that kind of society, it may be somewhat more difficult for us to stand apart from that and desire what is the right thing. And here in verse 6, we find that the right thing is righteousness. We should have a great passion for righteousness. It should be to us as much a desire or even more than the desire for food and drink. As much as our physical life depends on food and water, our spiritual life depends on righteousness. And the consuming desire of any believer should be for that which is right. Righteousness is just a sort of theological word for what is right. It's a desire for obedience. It's a desire to honor God. It's a desire to do that which brings him glory. That's part of our life. In fact, that's the very core of our spiritual life. Unfortunately, for one without Jesus Christ, that's not their desire. A person without Jesus Christ desires money, desires sexual fulfillment, desires to feel good about themselves, ultimate pleasure, success, prestige, popularity, power, all of those kinds of things. And all of the ambition that is somewhat innate in a human being is sent in the wrong direction. In fact, Peter compares the ambition of an unregenerate man with a dog going back and licking up his vomit. He desires something that is repulsive or a pig wallowing in the mire. The heart of the unbeliever, which really is created with a hunger for God, finds its direction away from God being fulfilled in a hunger for something else. In fact, they don't seek the bread of life, but the Bible says they seek that which is not bread. They think that they're going to find satisfaction and there is none. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13 says, They have forsaken me, speaking for God. And then God says, Me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In other words, they have rejected the source of true water, the source of true bread, for that which is not bread and that which is not water. There's no real satisfaction. The classic illustration of this in the New Testament would be the story of the prodigal son, right? He had everything he really needed in the father's house, and he went to his father one day in total dissatisfaction. He's emblematic of the sinner who revolts against the provision of God. And he said, I want all of my inheritance. I basically want to waste it on myself. And so he took his inheritance and he went away. And the Bible says in the old English that he spent it in riotous living, wild parties. He drank it up. He lived it up. He partied it up. And it was all gone. And he was empty. And in order to sustain himself, he went to work for a pig farmer and ate the pig slot. And he came to his senses one day and said, why in the world am I doing this? He said, how many hired servants in my father's house have bread enough and to spare? Luke 15, 17. And he ran back to his father's house. And he's an emblem of the, the sinner who, when coming to the bankruptcy of life and realizing that we, when he has spent himself and fulfilled all of his evil ambition, he comes up empty, runs back to the source of true satisfaction, that is God himself. 
Appetites can never be satisfied by the world's fare. All that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, all that is of the world perishes. Perishes. Now you have to ask your question, yourself a question when you come to a beatitude like this. It's a simple question. If you have any integrity in your heart, you'll ask it of yourself. And here's the question. What do you hunger for most? Ask yourself that. What do you hunger for most? If asked the question, what do you want most in life? What would be your immediate answer? Not the answer that you would calculate for the benefit of the questioner, but what is the honest answer of your heart? Because that is a monitor of where you are spiritually. The result of that question is going to tell you where you are in the kingdom. What do you desire most? What do you really crave? What do you wake up at night thinking about? What do you in your moments of meditation long for? If it's anything short of righteousness, then somewhere your priorities are skewed. They're off base. And so would mine be if the righteousness of God is not my priority. Now, let's look at what he means specifically by this. Obviously, it fits into the rest of the Beatitudes. Those who belong to the kingdom, back in verse 3, are poor in spirit. That is, they recognize they are morally bankrupt. Those who belong to the kingdom uh, mourn. That is, they are sorry over their sin. They know they're bankrupt. They have nothing to commend themselves to God. They're sorry about their sin. They then are meek, according to verse 5. You would be meek, wouldn't you, if you were morally bankrupt and sorry over your sin? You'd certainly be humble before God. You take the lowly place. So here is a person morally bankrupt, a person who literally knows that they offer God nothing, who is then sorry about that condition, who is humbled before God in that condition, who then desires strongly the righteousness of God, which they know they must have but cannot on their own generate. So meekness and mourning and brokenness lead to a hungering for righteousness. You don't hunger for righteousness if you think you have it. I mean, if you're a Pharisee at heart and you believe that you already please God, there's no hunger there. I heard a lady on the radio this morning coming here. Um, there's some kind of a Christian call-in program. And uh, those usually distress me deeply. This one did. lady called in and said, you know, I uh, used to think terribly of myself. I had all these problems and I had very low uh, self-esteem. And then I, I talked to so-and-so and began to find out what a wonderful person I was. And now I'm over all my problems because I talked to this guy and so forth and so on. That's really the spirit of the age. And it's encroached itself upon the church. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a healthy sense of the value you have to God. But when we get into playing psychological games where we deny our sinfulness, we really rob ourselves of an increasing righteousness because we think we've arrived. Much better that you should realize your moral bankruptcy and mourn over your sinfulness and take a place of humility and realize that you're not what you ought to be and then hunger and thirst for a greater righteousness. And the somewhat, um, somewhat real fact about that is that the more of that righteousness you receive by God's grace, uh, the less of it you'll think you have. I mean, that just goes with the territory. The pursuit of righteousness 
should be the consuming desire of every believer, not the pursuit of happiness. We're not into the constitutional guarantee. We're into the Word of God. Jesus is really saying here, why are you working so hard to get a righteousness? He's talking to the Pharisees. Why are you working so hard to get a righteousness you couldn't get? Why don't you realize your bankruptcy and come on God's terms for a righteousness that only can be received through grace? So you see the flow in the Beatitudes. It is natural for a bankrupt person who sees his own sin to hunger for the righteousness that only God can give. Now, what does it mean to hunger and thirst? Well, let's just talk about that for a moment. The idea simply is to pursue something with a great intensity. To pursue something with a great intensity. Now, people pursue a lot of things with a great intensity, but uh, there are a few people who pursue righteousness with great intensity. The people in his kingdom have a certain, and here's a word I like to use, a certain desperation. Uh, there's something about a desperate person that's sort of wonderful. A person who is with all their stamina and energy reaching out for something because there's a, there's a sense of, of, um, of death without that thing. I think about John Knox who said, give me Scotland or I die. That's desperation. Desperation is the idea in this hungering and thirsting. The soul that so longs to know the righteousness of God that it is absolutely discontent. Now, we talk about contentment, and it's legitimate. We want to be content in whatever state we are. But there is, on the other hand, and this is sort of the backside of that, uh, a very, very important place in your life for a sense of spiritual discontent, isn't there? You are content with the lot God has given you, but you're not content with the spiritual state you're in. And you hunger for more of the righteousness of God. In a book called The Last Crusade, written by Major V. Gilbert, an account is given of part of the British liberation of Palestine during World War I. Dr. E. M. Blakelock tells the story of the book in these words. Driving up from Beersheba, a combined force of British, Australian, and New Zealanders were pressing on the rear of the Turkish retreat over the arid desert. The attack outdistanced its water-carrying camel train. Water bottles were empty. The sun blazed pitilessly out of a sky where the vultures wheeled expectantly. Our hearts ached, writes Gilbert, and our eyes became bloodshot and dim in the blinding glare as we pursued the Turks. Our tongues began to swell, our lips turned purplish-black and burst. Those who dropped out of the column were never seen again, but the desperate force battled on to Sharia. There were wells at Sharia, and had they been unable to take the place by nightfall, thousands were doomed to die of thirst. We fought that day, writes Gilbert, as men fight for their lives. We entered Sharia station on the heels of the retreating Turks. The first objects which met our view were the great stone cisterns full of cold, clear drinking water. In the still night air, the sound of water running into the tanks could be distinctly heard, maddening in its nearness. Yet not a man murmured when orders were given for the battalions to fall in too deep facing the cisterns. He describes the stern priorities. The wounded, those on guard duty, then company by company. It took four hours before the last man had his drink of water. And in all that time, they had been standing 20 feet 
from a low stone wall on the other side of which were thousands of gallons of water. I believe, Major Gilbert, Gilbert concludes, that we all learned our first real Bible lesson on the march from Beersheba to Sharia. If such were our thirst for God, for righteousness, for His will in our life, a consuming, all-embracing, preoccupying desire, how rich in the fruit of the Spirit we would be. End quote. Even the terms used in this verse, look at them, hunger and thirst. The term hunger, penantes, means to suffer want, to be in deep need. The term thirst, dipsao, means to suffer thirst. And both of them carry a strength of desire. The strongest impulses in the human realm are the desire for food and drink. And they are both, by the way, present tense participles, which mean they means they carry a present continuous action, showing that this goes on and on and on. Blessed are those who are continually hungering and continually thirsting after righteousness. In fact, as I said earlier, the very desire increases with the satisfaction. The more of God's righteousness you taste, the more of it you you seek. It becomes a way of life. Think of Moses. He had been given the law by God. What, a, what an honor. He had seen personally God's glory when tucked in the mountain and God's glory passed by. In obedience to God's command, Moses had built the tabernacle in which the Shekinah glory of God came to dwell. He went into it, right into the very presence of God, and there he made a request that is quite interesting. And it expresses the deep longing of his heart, which was to see the glory of God. When first encountering God and that marvelous record of Exodus 33 and 34, he says, show me thy glory. And God showed him that glory in part as he tucked him in the rock. And later when the tabernacle was completed, that glory came in a greater fullness and greater display as glowing light. The interesting thing to note is that with all the things that had happened in the life of Moses in which God was revealed, including the giving of the law where he saw God in flaming fire, as it were, crackling around Mount Sinai, there was never a sense of satisfaction but only a longing for more. All that he had seen of God and all that he had known of God had only created and whetted his appetite to see and know more. And in seeing God, he doesn't pray a prayer of thanks. He prays a prayer that says, show me more of your glory. And then there was David, and David walked in communion with God. He wrote the Psalms about enjoying the presence of God, Psalms that have comforted all of us. He could say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want... And he gave many testimonies to the presence of God, yet it was never enough. And so in Psalm 42, he says, as the heart, H-A-R-T, which is a word meaning a deer, as the deer pants after the water brook, so pants my soul after thee, O God. And then he said, my, th my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. It didn't matter how much of God he had experienced, there was always the desire for more. 
In Psalm 63, verses 1 and 2, O God, he says, Thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. Why? My soul thirsts for thee. My flesh longs for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is to see thy power and thy glory. Can you identify with that? I mean, ask yourself honestly. Can you identify with that? Do you rise in the morning to say, O God, Thou art my God. Early will I seek Thee, my soul thirsts for Thee. My flesh longs for Thee in a dry and thirsty land. Is the deepest longing of your heart to see the power of God on display, the glory of God, or is the deepest desire of your heart to see what you want fulfilled? You see how far away we get from the heart of true spirituality. I think of the Apostle Paul, and I suppose if any Christian would be uh, the symbol of, uh, of comprehensive Christianity, it would be Paul. He had known the blessing of God, and yet when you touch the deepest part of Paul's heart, this is what you hear him cry in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him. And you say to yourself, well, you already know him. You, you've seen him three times, the risen Christ. You've been lifted to the very heaven to see things too wonderful to even speak. You have, in that particular instance, come back from the dead. You have been delivered a myriad of times from great danger. You, of anyone, have received the most revelation that God could give to one man. Thirteen epistles of the New Testament. What do you mean that I may know him? And we understand that what he means is that the more of God he knows and the more of Christ he comprehends, the greater the desire becomes. And you hear Peter, and Peter similarly knows Christ. He walks with Christ. He lives with Christ. He experiences the miracles of Christ through those three years of companionship. And yet he cries out, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word. And what he means to say there is that, that uh, we desire the word like a baby desires milk. Well, how does a baby desire milk? Very strongly. And that's how we desire the word. In Second Peter 3, in verse 18, Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. And he's still calling out for spiritual growth. That's just... How it is. You hunger for the righteousness of God and it never, ever changes. J.N. Darby, who was really in many ways the father of the Plymouth Brethren movement, wrote many of their early books, wrote this. To be hungry is not enough. I must be really starving to know what is in God's heart toward me. When the prodigal son was hungry, he went to feed on the husks. But when he was starving, he returned to his father. And that's what I mean by desperation. And that's why you can count it all joy. That's why you can count it all joy when difficulty comes into your life. Because it is out of spiritual difficulty that your hunger level is increased. When everything is going well, you don't have that starving feeling. But when there's a bankruptcy in your life of one kind or another, it is out of that starving that you pursue God. Sort of a desperation that's healthy. To be desperate is to reach out to God and find, as Luke 153 says, that He hath filled the hungry with good things, but the rich He sent away empty. 
He can't do anything for people who don't seek him because they think they have everything. Now, what is the object of this desire? Let's look back at our text again. We see something about the desire. What's the object? Well, blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Righteousness. Frankly, young people and you that are older as well, the world around us is committed to finding happiness at any price. Not righteousness. Happiness. But dealing with happiness is so superficial. It is like a man who has a fatal disease that generates a lot of pain and he goes to the doctor and the doctor relieves his pain and does absolutely nothing for his disease. That man is not a good doctor. He ought to be sued for malpractice. I mean, I remember when I was in college and I was having knee problems playing football, but... Uh, it just wasn't possible for me not to play. It wasn't possible in my mind for me to say I'm not going to play, and it wasn't possible for the coach to allow it either, I guess. In fact, I remember in one game we were playing, and I dislocated my shoulder in the first quarter and played 60 minutes that day because the coach said you're not allowed to be injured. Well, that was a good thing for me to learn. It was a difficult day. When the day was over, the coach said, I just want to let you know they ran power sweeps left all day long and I was playing the corner over there. We had 23 tackles. And after the first one, they were all made with my right side. But I guess I learned to live with pain. And later on when I injured my knee, I remember we had a very important game and the coach said, I don't care what you do, just be sure you're there. And everything is taken care of. And I went to the doctor and they, they shot the knee up with a whole lot of stuff. And then I came back and they, I had had a figure eight on that knee for a long time because of some earlier problems. And uh, so I went ahead and played. I didn't feel a thing. In fact, I kept in my bag two bottles of ethyl chloride and periodically during the game I'd go over to the bench and I'd take that stuff out. It freezes an injury so you don't have any pain. And I'd just spray that knee. And then I'd go on for a little while and a little while later I'd go back and spray it again. And uh, I played. And as I remember, we won, and it was wonderful. However, <laughs> I did permanent damage to my knee, which didn't seem to matter to anybody at that particular point. That's how it is when you get into a football program where they want to win. And um, as a result of that, I have permanent knee damage. You see, the point is you cannot ignore the symptom and expect not to have the root problem aggravated. And just for people to seek the superficiality of happiness and never deal with the real disease is so tragic. You want to know true happiness, you seek to resolve the issues of righteousness. I mean, people think they'll be happy if they have this car or this wardrobe or this girl or this guy or, or this career or that thing, when the truth is that is really dealing with superficiality. That's what Jesus meant when he said, seek ye first what? We sang it. The kingdom of God and what? His righteousness. And then all the other stuff gets added. But so many of us get our ambition for some earthly thing that will make us happy in the way. And then we give little thought to righteousness. We get what we want. I remember talking to a guy in the NHL, the National Hockey League. He was with Boston and had won the Stanley Cup and then got traded to the Kings. And he said to me, I'll never forget the biggest disappointment of my entire life. 
I said, what was it? He said, the Stanley Cup. I said, really? He said, yeah, all my life I lived to win the Stanley Cup, won it, and absolutely was filled with emptiness. Well, how much better to seek for righteousness and then get the joy that true righteousness brings? It was a good opportunity, by the way, to present the gospel, but his heart was not open. We seek righteousness, and that's, that's the standard. And any less than that is to pursue something that ultimately cannot deliver what it promises. Only righteousness can do that. And what do I mean by that? I mean just simply the fact that we need as a life pattern to pursue obedience to the Word of God. We need to move away from the things that are sinful. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's now with the Lord, but pastored London and has written so many wonderful things, said this. Perhaps we can sum it up like this. To hunger and thirst after righteousness is to desire to be free from self in all its horrible manifestations, in all its forms. When we considered the man who is meek, we saw that all that really means is that he is free from self in every shape and form. Self-concern, pride, boasting, self-protection, sensitiveness, always imagining people are against him, a desire to protect self, glorify self. That's what leads to quarrels among individuals. That is what leads to quarrels among nations, self-assertion. Now, the man who hungers and thirsts after righteousness is a man who longs to be free from all that. He wants to be emancipated from self-concern in every shape and form. Now, seeking after righteousness really draws us to two things. One, salvation. And two, sanctification. It initiates salvation. When you were saved, it was because you hungered for righteousness, right? I mean, that's where it started. You saw your sin. You realize your bankruptcy and you came to Christ. And righteousness, particularly in the Old Testament, but also in the book of Romans and elsewhere in the New, is synonymous with salvation. So uh, when he says here in verse 6, Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness, he's talking about those who seek salvation. That is certainly implied here. Salvation is for those who hunger for it. It's for those who thirst for it. It's for those who mourn over their sin, who are bankrupt, who realize they have nothing to commend themselves to God. And I really believe that that is the bottom line in bringing someone to Christ. They have to want that. They have to seek that. They have to hunger for that. I've often said, well, that person didn't come to Christ because they're not desperate enough. The belonging is not profound enough. You find that with a rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus, what do I do to have eternal life? When Jesus began to probe how strongly he wanted it, he went away. He didn't want it strongly enough. Certainly not enough to give up some of the lifestyle that he was enjoying. Certainly not enough to confess his sin. And the bottom line in salvation is a strong desire. What does it say in the Old Testament in Isaiah? If you seek me, what? With all your heart. In fact, um, probably the, the greatest Old Testament passage on the seeking heart is in Isaiah 55. And it shows the character of true seeking. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. And here's the nature of the seeking. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him turn to the Lord. And he will have mercy upon him and our God, for he will abundantly pardon. 
In other words, it is a desperation that causes one to seek, to turn from the wickedness, to turn from the righteous thoughts, to move toward the Lord and cry out for mercy. That is the seeking for salvation. There is that salvation aspect here. But secondly, there's the aspect of sanctification. And I really believe that that seeking for righteousness becomes a pattern of life. The rest of life for a Christian is a matter of seeking righteousness. We desire to be conformed to the image of Christ. We keep on hungering for more and more of His holiness. We desire a truer virtue and a greater purity. We want to be more like Jesus Christ. And so it's blessed are they who do continually hunger and thirst. There's also... Uh, the idea of the word now there in the original text. It, there's, a, there's an immediacy here. We, we seek righteousness. Kind of an interesting way to approach this might be to just give you a little insight in the original language. Very often, verbs in this kind of construction would be followed by the use of the genitive case. And the genitive case would be uh, expressed with the word of. It would not be, for example, uh, uncommon to have a genitive here so that it would read like this. Blessed are they who do hunger and thirst um, of. Um, you could say it this way. I'm trying to see how to make it clear. Who do hunger for of food. Uh, who do thirst for of water. The idea being what is called a, a, a partitive genitive. You, you don't hunger for all the food in the world. You just hunger for of food. You don't thirst for all the water in the world. You just thirst for of water. Uh, that is some of it. That's a partitive genitive. That could have been used here. It would have made sense. But what is used here is not that. But dikaiosune, the word righteousness, appears in the accusative, which is to say that it is in a consummate sense, hungering and thirsting after not some righteousness, not of righteousness, but hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That is in a consuming sense, the whole thing, all righteousness, which is to say that we're never satisfied until we are like Christ. And didn't David say that I will be satisfied when I awake in thy likeness? We should not as a believer be content with a portion of righteousness but only with all of righteousness. Nothing held back. So, hungering and thirsting after righteousness begins at salvation and continues through the process of spiritual life. So that there is always in my life, and I trust in yours, a sort of, um, a sort of tension between satisfaction for what God has done for me and blessed dissatisfaction because I long for more of that righteousness which I have already experienced from Him. It fascinates me, by the way, that this verse does not say, Blessed are they who possess righteousness. See, that's not going to happen until we face the Lord, right? But blessed are they who know they don't possess it, but seek it. But seek it. In a sense, it's a thirst that no stream will ever be able to satisfy in this life. It's a hunger that will never be satisfied fully. By the way, at the end of verse 6, it says, If we do seek this, we'll be filled. The Lord will respond. 
We will be filled, but that's a word that is used of animals being foddered up. We'll be foddered up till we can't eat anymore. We'll be satisfied. If we seek righteousness, there will be a certain sense of satisfaction. We'll be filled. And then we'll seek more and we'll be filled. Psalm 107 tells us that he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. And Psalm 3410 says, They that seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. And Psalm 23, I shall not want my cup, what? Runs over. My people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. Jeremiah 3114. So there is satisfaction. God does give us that. And out of that new satisfaction comes the next level of dissatisfaction. And we just keep moving. That's 2 Corinthians 318 where you're at one level of glory and then the next level of glory and the next level of glory moving along more toward Christ-likeness and that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, in conclusion, how do I know if I'm really hungering and thirsting after righteousness? How do I know that? Let me ask you some basic questions. Number one, are you dissatisfied with yourself? Are you dissatisfied with where you are spiritually? Because that's very healthy. In fact, Thomas Watson used to say, He has most need of righteousness who least wants it. So ask yourself the question, Are you dissatisfied with yourself? Do you understand the words of Paul? These words, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Do you understand that? Do you understand what it is to hate certain things about you, even as a believer? And ask yourself a second question. Does nothing external really satisfy you? Do you find that things have little influence on how you feel or great influence? It's a fair question. Do things fill you up? Do things meet your appetite and satisfy you? Or do things have little influence on how you feel? So ask yourself, do external things satisfy you? You see, uh, if you're hungry, flowers and music and pleasant talk don't help. And if you're thirsty, you don't want a melody or a rose. That doesn't meet your need. If that's what you want, then that'll satisfy you. So if you're satisfied by what you have materially, then that's because that's what you desire. So ask yourself whether you're satisfied with external things. And then thirdly, ask yourself this question. Do I have a great appetite for the Word of God? Do I have a great appetite for the Word of God? And I, I have to confess to you, young people, that I can acknowledge on behalf of some of you that you don't because of the work you do in class. You are, in many cases, taking classes in the Word of God that indicate that you have no great appetite for that. On the other hand, some of you do have a great appetite for the Word of God. It may not always be reflected in your grade, but then again, on the other hand, it may often be reflected in that. You say, well, that's academics. Yeah, well, I don't care what you label it. You either hunger for the Word of God or you don't. And if you do, it'll show up in a Bible class, whether it's an academic class or not. Because the privilege of just learning the Word of God will appeal to you. So you ask yourself that question, do I have a great appetite for the Word of God? And then fourthly, ask yourself the question, are the things of God sweet to me? Are the things of God sweet to me? 
You see, to a hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. When you're really hungry, everything tastes good. I'm telling you, when I go travel around as I just did, and I meet people in obscure places, some people drove 400 miles for one meeting. And I would say to them, why do you do that? Because we are so hungry for the Word of God. Then I feel, you know, I give a message that isn't that hot, but to them, I mean, they're so hungry. And then you come back here, you know, and I go back to Grace Community Church where I've told them more than I know 15 times in the last 18 years. And they've got it coming out their ears. And they don't even understand the significance of it. That's always the danger, isn't it, in a place like this? The danger is you lose your appetite because you're overfed. So you have to ask yourself whether the things of God are sweet. And even the tough things, you know, Thomas Watson also said he can feed on the bitterness of the gospel as well as the honey. It all ought to be sweet. And then ask yourself the question, is my, is my hunger and thirst unconditional? Is it unconditional? In other words, um, do I so long after righteousness that there's nothing that would limit my pursuit? Psalm 119.20, my soul breaks for the longing it has, both to thy, for the longing it has to thy judgments. Does your soul break for a longing for the things of God to the extent that there's no compromise? Isaiah said, my, with my soul have I desired thee in the night, yea, with my spirit within me shall I seek thee early. Is it such a strong desire in you that um, nothing gets in the way? Now, see, all these questions really do help us take our spiritual temperature, don't they? You ask yourself whether you're one of these people who has a beatitude attitude, who hungers and thirsts after righteousness, and if you can say, that's the desire of my heart, then you have the promise of God that you shall be what? Filled. Now, I can't think of anything more wonderful than to be filled with the good things of God. And let me tell you something. You say, but I still have a lot of desires in my life. I'd like to accomplish this and succeed at that and do this and, and so forth and so on. Fine. You think God wants to deny you that? Not on your life. God is not in the business of raining on parades. God is no cosmic killjoy going around saying, there's one having fun. <laughs> Get him. See, that's not God's approach. What God wants to do is give you such good things that you can't even dream of what those good things are. He wants to fulfill your life in a measure that you can't even conceive of. That is far beyond all the things you think would be the best. But the condition is not to pursue what you think you need. The thing that you want to pursue is his what? His righteousness. And then all these other things are added. I just give you my own personal testimony. I sought my own things for a long time till God threw me on the pavement, slid me down 110 yards on my tail end and put me in bed for three months. And then I said, all right, Lord, I'll start seeking what you want. And then as a result of setting my life toward the things of God, I began to receive things I never dreamed God would have given to me. And God had given me certain abilities. God had given me ability maybe in athletics and certain ability in communication. And I had some small little ambitions, but God had these massive things that He, by His grace, wanted to accomplish in my life. And once the focus was right in terms of seeking righteousness, then everything that God ever designed into me physically and spiritually began to come to fruition.
Don't cheat yourself. You can be filled if your perspective is right. Now, it may be in an area other than you think it is. But I can only tell you this. Once you find out where God wants you and you sense His fulfillment, there's nothing in the world that can compare with that. Well, let's pray together. Father, we do thank You today for what is in this day, potentially, for Your glory. Bless every person here. Thank You for the love that we share together. I thank You for every young person, every staff member, faculty member, Lord, I thank you for what you want to do in their lives. And I thank you for the richness that they bring to our life as a family here at the college. But, Lord, I do pray for myself and all of us that we would never lose our perspective. And that ever and always we would pursue righteousness with all our strength. And in so doing, know the fulfillment of every other dimension of life that you've given us for blessing and joy. Thank you for the good things. And we thank you, Lord, that they're all for us because you're a God of beauty and a God of grace. But they're for us through the means of obedience to you. So send us faithfully down that path that we may know the fullness of joy you have for your children. We give you this day with thanksgiving. In Christ's name, amen.